Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We're trying to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, and that's why we're spoon-feeding you the latest research. Now then, let's quickly spoil everything that I'm going to cover this week. First off, kids bruise easy and often, but only in some places. You have to keep an eye out for where they're bruised. Second, a kid with a full bladder can be easier to get a urine sample from, but concentration can make a difference. Third, a review of the irregularly irregular treatment of AFib. After that, the lengths we go to to keep NPO before procedures, but maybe we can just feed babies. And then finally, cooling your jets on therapeutic hypothermia. This was the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the thoughtful Kevin Stover, Andy Hogan, and Clay Smith. So here's our first article, which is titled Evaluation of an Emergency Department High-Risk Bruising Screening Protocol out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Now, in general, kids run into stuff, they fall, they jump, they do everything, and this can leave them covered in bruises. But really, the bruises that kids give to themselves are only certain kinds of bruises. A lot of them are going to be in their shins. Then there's bruising that kids don't typically cause to themselves, meaning it's likely caused by abuse, and we call this high-risk bruising. Now, there's a not-so-amazing mnemonic for all the places that you can find high-risk bruising, and that's 10 for faces P, which stands for torso, ears, neck under 4 years old, any bruising under 4 months at all, or injury to the frenulum, auricle, cheek, eyes, sclera, or any pattern bruising. All this to say, it's worth keeping an eye out for high-risk bruising, and this article shows us why that's important. This was a retrospective study of almost 44,000 patients less than 4 years old who presented to a pediatric emergency department and were screened for bruising by a nurse. By doing this, they found that 1.8% or almost 800 patients screened positive for bruising. 0.6% of all the children younger than 6 months screened positive for high-risk bruising which in this age group is really any bruising at all. And then half of these were considered to be due to abuse. That's half of those children with high-risk bruising being suspected of being due to abuse. Unfortunately, not all these children had skeletal surveys performed, which was protocol at the site. But in those where it was performed, 40% of them had an occult fracture. Now, from the rest of the children, aged 6 months to 2 years old, 0.3%, or 115 children, had high-risk bruising, and 28% of them were diagnosed with likely or definite abuse. These are huge proportions of a small subset of the population. I take back what I said about that mnemonic, maybe it's a little bit better that I do actually know all the features of high-risk bruising. It's probably worth remembering if it's going to be such a decent predictor. In a spoonful, high-risk bruising clearly isn't common, just a fraction of 1% of children presenting to an emergency department, but it can't be ignored either because these patients are at high risk of being victims of abuse. Then we have the second article which was titled Pyuria and Urine Concentration for Identifying Urinary Tract Infections in Young Children out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Now, a while ago, we covered a neat paper that talked about how the degree to which different parameters of the pediatric urine analysis are positive will affect their predictive values. By extension, it also makes sense to question how much the concentration of the urine is going to matter. Your body isn't likely to push more white blood cells in your urine just because you decided to get the large slush at the gas station on your way home, but it will make it necessary for your body to make a lot more urine. 
This was a retrospective study, which actually trying to imagine it as a prospective study would be kind of hilarious. Anyways, they looked at 24,000 children under two years old with paired urinalyses and cultures. 8% of them were positive, that's about 2,000 children, and those are the ones that we're interested in. The ideal cutoff points for white blood cells per high-powered field varied based on the concentration of the urine. Now I'm going to throw a whole bunch of numbers at you. Don't have to remember them necessarily, but I'm going to give them to you anyways. For a specific value of less than 1.011, three white blood cells per high-powered field had a positive likelihood ratio of 10.5 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.12. Those are pretty good numbers. For a specific gravity of 1.11 to 20, then it was up to six white blood cells per high-powered field. And this had very similar positive and negative likelihood ratios. Now, when the specific gravity was above 1.020, that is quite concentrated, then that white blood cell cutoff actually went up to 8, and this had a positive likelihood ratio of 11.1 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.35. In terms of other markers you might be looking at, any child who had a small leukocyte esterase on urine analysis had a positive likelihood ratio of more than 25 at any concentration of urine. And the negative likelihood ratios were the same for low and medium concentrations, but they were less good at high concentrations. So to sum it up, in a spoonful, in children less than two years old, they may still have a UTI even with as few as three white blood cells per high-powered field on urine microscopy if the urine is very dilute. And it's worth mentioning that leukocyte esterase on urine analysis was still a very strong predictor no matter what concentration the urine was. Then we have the third article, which was titled Atrial Fibrillation out of the New England Journal of Medicine. So first, let's recap some of the stuff that Journal Feed has covered about AFib in the last little while. And while I'm at it, I'd like to remind you about how conveniently searchable the Journal Feed blog is. Even if you only remember a tiny bit of the study related to your patient, it's actually quite easy to search it up in the blog, and then you can apply that study to your patient. Anyways, when it comes to AFib, there's more than one way to skin that cat. The AFFIRM trial showed us that there's no survival benefit to rhythm over rate control. If you are cardioverting, then delayed cardioversion closer to 48 hours is non-inferior to doing it earlier. But rhythm control within the first year might be better. Lastly, to get rate control, there appears to be no difference between metoprolol and diltiazem. Needless to say, the management can get confusing. This article was actually a concise review of the management of AFib. AFib is, of course, important because it increases the incidence of stroke, heart failure, dementia, and overall mortality. This is, of course, a common diagnosis that's made with an ECG. Now, the electrical problem that causes this fibrillation usually comes from the sleeves of the pulmonary veins, which are secluded from the rest of the heart, at least electrically, when these patients have ablations. Now, I'd like to say that the journal feed is a great place for you to get a comprehensive review of how to treat AFib, but unfortunately, it's just too much detail to get into a small package. So let's just cut straight to what our author Kevin thought were the major takeaways from this study. First off, anticoagulation, as guided by the chads vast score, of course, decreases the risk of stroke, but it won't ever truly eliminate it. Second, be careful of some rhythm control agents. Things like flecainide, sotalol, propafenone, they can actually dramatically increase the QT interval, and you don't want to start a dysrhythmia in order to fix another. Another point is that digoxin is a very old medication, but it still has a role. Some patients with heart failure and AFib are going to need it, so keep an eye out for that toxicity. 
And then lastly, those ablations that I mentioned, they are far from foolproof. 15 to 50% of patients will return to AFib. Also, there can be some nasty complications from ablations, though rare, like left atrial esophageal fistulization, pulmonary vein stenosis, and cardiac tamponade. Alright, in a spoonful, most outpatient management of AFib is the identification and reduction of risk factors, things like hypertension, alcohol use, and diabetes. Chad's asked them to decide on anticoagulation and try for a shared decision-making approach to long-term rate control versus rhythm control. And then we have the fourth article, which is titled Ultrasound Evaluation of Gastric Emptying Time in Healthy Term Neonates After Formula Feeding out of the Journal of Anesthesiology. Currently, the American Society of Anesthesiologists calls for six hours of pre-procedure fasting in neonates who drink formula. That's all well and good, but fasting a neonate isn't like asking some adult to just deal with it and be hangry for a little bit. Hypoglycemia is a real risk, and babies tend to be very vocal in letting you know about that risk. A neonate will want to eat much sooner than every six hours. So if we could cut down on that time between feeds, then I think all parties involved would really appreciate it. This study was a prospective analysis of 46 healthy term newborns who were ultrasounded to assess their gastric antrum every 15 minutes after formula feeding. The average time to emptying was found to be 93 minutes, with a range from 45 to 150 minutes. So even at their highest times, they were nowhere near 6 hours. In a spoonful, waiting 2.5 hours after a neonate has eaten formula, if that long, should be plenty for pre-procedure fasting. The ASA's guidelines of six hours are likely too generous. And that brings us finally to our last article titled Hypothermia versus Normothermia after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Not so long ago, there was a huge push for post-arrest patients who remain in a coma after ROSC to undergo therapeutic hypothermia in hopes of preserving neurological function or improving mortality. It's a nice idea, but it's a lot of work to fight against the body's homeostatic mechanisms to try to keep them cold, we're warm-blooded animals after all. It's heavy on resources, and it's heavy on time. It'd better be worth it if we're going to do something like that. It'd be a lot easier just to prevent them from having hyperthermia, let's be honest. So this study was a real blow to the fans of cooling down patients, which, <laughs> that's actually kind of a pun. Anyway, the study randomized a whopping 1,861 patients, and their methods make up for a lot of the pitfalls that were previously seen in research of this type. What they found was that there was no difference in the primary outcome of six-month mortality between the hypothermia group and the maintaining normothermia group. Similarly, there was no difference in the rates of unfavorable neurological survival either. And on top of that, as another point against hypothermia, was an increased rate of hemodynamically unstable arrhythmias, which was significantly different between the groups, 24% in hypothermia and 17% otherwise. Now, you may have noticed that there was actually no control group in this study that just had no temperature management at all. And whether or not hypothermia is truly harmful is kind of still up for debate. Regardless, this study is going to be one that pushes a lot of people away from therapeutic hypothermia, though. In a spoonful, cooling patients to 33 degrees Celsius after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest did not improve mortality or neurologically intact survival compared to just maintaining a temperature below 37.8. And that finishes us up, so let's wrap up everything that we learned. 
First off, rare as it might be, high-risk bruising seems to be a very real red flag in young children, and this should be investigated anytime you see it. Second, I mostly just skim over that section of the urinalysis that talks about urine-specific gravity, but now I guess I should pay it a little bit more attention because the likelihood ratios of the white blood cell counts certainly change as a result of it. Third, AFib is treated differently in a lot of different places. Find your way, make sure it's evidence-based, and stick to it, I guess. Fourth, we're hoping to save you some time and a very unhappy baby. The ASA's guidelines of six hours of pre-procedure fasting for neonates is excessive. Two and a half hours should do the trick, and even that might be generous in most cases. And finally, from the fifth article, there's no need to keep your patients cold after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Just don't let them get hot. At least that's what this study seems to show. Now, then you earn them, we offer them. We offer CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where if you go there, you can also sign up for our newsletter and get that every weekday morning. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.